Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you weren't here last week, I'll just say Pastor Jeff kicked off what we're just doing, a little mini three-week series before our fall kicks off when we're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes together where he, Pastor Brian Schwarberg, and myself are all taking turns sharing a little bit about the vision of our church. Now, as Jeff mentioned last week, and I think it bears repeating again and again, the mission of every church is the same. Jesus gives us that mission in Matthew 28. All churches are supposed to go and make disciples. But as we've talked about here, the way an individual church does that can be unique. And so at Cherry Hills, we believe God has called us to a particular vision that we're going after, that we're pursuing. And you can see this vision up here on the banners. Maybe you got one of those bookmarks from last week. But I'm going to ask you to read it once again with us this morning, just so we remind ourselves of the vision we believe God's calling us to do. Will you read it? It says, we are fighting shallow Christianity by becoming H3 disciples of Jesus, disciples who are hungry, humble, and hospitable. Now, if you weren't here last week, Pastor Jeff taught on the second part of that vision statement, the H3 portion. And I'll just say to you, if you missed that, I highly encourage you to go to our website and listen to that online. In fact, if you want to be a part of our church family, if you're getting to know us a little bit, I can't think of a better place for you to start than there to know where we believe God is leading us together as a church family. That's the kind of thing we're going after. Now, this morning, I'm actually going to talk about the first part of that vision statement that God is calling us to fight shallow Christianity. As Jeff mentioned last week, we kind of switched the order so that we could speak out of our overflow or out of the passion of our hearts, and I took that to mean, Jeff knows I have so much experience with shallow Christianity, (laughs) he thought I should be the one to give this message. It's funny, but it's true. He wouldn't be wrong. In fact, the truth is, I bet all of us look at that statement and see ways in our lives that that's what I drift towards. I drift towards nominal Christianity, shallow Christianity in my life. For me, friends, it's my natural drift. It's my natural instinct. And the reason for that is very simple. If you're using message notes this morning, the first thing there is the Christian life doesn't just happen. The Christian life doesn't just happen, it's a fight. It's a fight. I've been thinking of it this way. I think of it like a garden. For a garden to bear fruit or vegetables, a seed must be planted. And then that seed must begin to grow roots that go deep. They can't go shallow. And as the garden grows, you need to do two things. You need to weed the garden. And the garden needs to have proper nourishment. And friends, that's really all we're talking about here when we say we're fighting shallow Christianity. Jesus' call for every single disciple of his is we are to bear fruit for his glory. But that doesn't just happen. Just like a garden isn't just going to happen out of nowhere. It's an intentional process, an intentional journey of weeding getting those things out of our lives that keep us from bearing fruit, but also the proper nourishment. Are there going to be setbacks and failures? If you've ever done a garden, you know there will be. And the good news is that's all part of God's process for us, friends. It's all part of growing. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be failures. But God loves to use our failures and setbacks to bear even more fruit for his glory and kingdom. We want at our church to bear fruit 
for God's glory. That's our vision. So we're fighting shallow Christianity. And so one of the ways we've said this often here, you've probably heard this if you've been a part of our church. Again, if you're falling on your notes is salvation is only the beginning of a new life in Christ. Salvation is only the beginning of a new life in Christ. Again, I think of that garden illustration. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, think of it like a seed being planted in the ground. The expectation, the hope, is that seed won't remain a seed. The the hope is that that seed is going to grow into something God has called it to grow, that we're going to grow into something God has called us to grow into. And that we bear fruit for his glory. God's goal when he saved you wasn't just to get you to heaven when you die. I mean, that's certainly a part of it. That's certainly a great part of it. But his goal is so much more for us. He has so much more in mind. And this morning, I want to look at a passage with you that I think kind of gives us a vision for God's goal for our lives. It's found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you brought your own Bible, you can find the book of Romans about four-fifths of the way back in your Bible. It's right after the book of Acts. If you don't have your own Bible, we always carry some and the seats underneath you some there. I'd love for you to grab one of those black Bibles there. You can find Romans 12 on page 789 of those black. Bibles. Now, as you're turning there, let me just give you a little background on Romans. The author of Romans is the Apostle Paul. And if you've ever read through one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, which the New Testament is full of Paul's letters, one of the things you're going to notice on almost every single one of Paul's letters is that at about halfway point between his letter, Paul makes a major shift in his writing. It's almost true for almost every one of his letters. Usually there's a split that occurs. So in the first part of Paul's letters, typically what Paul is doing is he's writing to the churches to remind them of who Jesus is and what his death and resurrection has accomplished for them. He reminds us of who we are because of who Jesus is. He reminds us of our identity, of our hope. He reminds us of what our faith accomplishes for us in Christ. But then... Like I said, about halfway through the letter, Paul usually shifts into a big therefore. A big therefore. And if you've never heard the rule about therefore, whenever you're reading the Bible and there's a therefore, you always ask what the therefore is there for. For Paul, never is it enough just to remind us about what Christ has accomplished for us. I mean, that's the seed. There's always a therefore. There's always a, because of, because of what Christ has done for us, we have been called to live a certain way. We are seeds that have been planted to bear fruit. Now, I know for some of us, when we get to that part in uh, the second half of Paul's letters, it starts to read a lot more like rules. I like the first part of Paul's letters better. It tells me all the good things I have in Jesus Christ. And then he starts talking about things like rules. And that's how I looked at it in my young life. But what I've come to understand, and I hope you've come to understand as well, what Paul is really saying is, if that seed has been planted in your life, these are the kinds of things that are going to grow and develop as a result. You've been called to bear fruit for God's glory. And so he gets into what does fruit actually look like? Here's what a life lived for God's glory actually looks like. And so we're going to see in Romans 12, verse 1, here comes the big therefore. 
He spent the first eight chapters telling the church at Rome all about who they are in Christ, what he's accomplished for them. There's a little excursus in chapters 9 through 11 talking about uh, the Jewish people and what it means for them. And then he comes to Romans 12, verse 1. Would you read it out loud with me on your notes there? It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I'll read verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is the key to fighting shallow Christianity in our lives? According to this passage, we see it in verse 1. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Well, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Let's break that down a little bit. First of all, by using the word body here, I hope you know Paul is referring to much more than just our skin and bones. He's talking about the total person of who we are. If you're following on your notes there, body represents our total person. Our total person. Paul is saying here, your body is everything you are. And you are to offer that to God. In other words, your emotions, your mind, your thoughts, your desires, your plans represents you. The totality of your person, your wholeness of who you are, in order for you to become who God intends you to become, you must offer all that you are to God. Now, one of my pet peeves in the church today is that we've created this distinction between what we refer to as the spiritual life and our regular life. As if we can kind of separate the two things. The spiritual life is what I do on Sunday mornings, maybe for 20 minutes in the morning when I wake up. But then I have my regular life, my life at work, my life at home, my life in my neighborhood, my life at the gym, my life at all these different places. And we cut up our lives into these nice little pieces. But that was never God's intention for us. That separation was never even considered by God. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, there's a word that's used over and over and over again. It's the Hebrew word nephesh. It is uh, defined as soul. But really, it means much more than what we think of soul, like the spiritual part of us. No, it's talking about our totality, our whole person. So Psalm 103 can say, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. That's God's vision for us. All that we are belongs to him. All that we are belongs to him. That's why Pastor Brian even mentioned it earlier this morning when Jesus is asked the greatest commandment, what does he say in Mark 12, 30? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Does he stop? Just the spiritual part of who you are? No. With all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Everything you are, you are to love the Lord with. Let me put it this way if you're on your notes. God isn't just interested in our spiritual life but our entire life. I know for some of you this sounds so basic, but please let's just pause here and recognize that we will never begin fighting shallow Christianity until we understand this. You you can't start fighting shallow Christianity in your life unless you have first come to the understanding that your whole life belongs to God. Every part of it. There's no distinction between your spiritual life and your regular life. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. These are such important verses. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. What does that mean? What's the next word? Therefore, what is it therefore? Therefore, honor God with your bodies. My skin and bones? No. That, but everything. I was bought at a price. Therefore, bear fruit for God's kingdom. Honor him with everything you are. Paul then goes on to describe how we do this. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now that sounds like an oxymoron to me. I don't know about you. You know what oxymorons are? Like jumbo shrimp or Microsoft works. <laughs> I asked my friend if I could use that who works at Microsoft. He gave me permission. He said that's why they discontinued it probably. <laughs> what does it mean then to be a living sacrifice? Of course, Paul is referring back to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where priests were instructed by God to offer sacrifices on behalf of people as an act of worship for the forgiveness of sins. That was how they worshiped. But in Romans 1 through 8, Paul just explained to the Roman church that Jesus Christ has become a once and for all sacrifice for sin. And so what Paul is suggesting here is that because of Christ's sacrifice, we no longer need to offer animal sacrifices. Anybody glad about that? Instead, though, maybe even more challenging is we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifice. If you're following on your notes there, true worship is offering my life, and I italicize that to remind us life is my whole life, not just my spiritual life, to God as a living sacrifice. True worship is offering my life to God as a living sacrifice. Practically, what this means is that every moment of every day of your life, can be an opportunity to worship God. You can worship God in your work, at the shop, at the office, at the factory, at the home, in your school. You can offer worship to God um, in your activities, in the gym, in your sports. You can worship God at the entertainment that you participate in the people you surround yourself with, all of these become opportunities for us to offer our worship to God. I'll give you an example of when this hit home for me. I used to hear people say all the time, and we've got some FCA people here, which is awesome, but like I would play uh, tennis was my sport in high school, and said, you can play tennis for the glory of God. I'm like, what? No, I'm playing tennis to win. (laughs) And over time, I realized that's not the greatest motive in the world. Even better is to offer my body as I play tennis for God's glory, the way I speak, the way I react. Even when I win, how am I going to approach the person I beat? Even when I lose, how am I going to approach the person I lost to? Even tennis is an opportunity to worship God. I think it's sad we've kind of reduced worship to the singing part of our services on Sunday morning and why those are a vital part of true worship. The biblical understanding of worship is that every moment of every day is an opportunity. The way I live my life is an opportunity to worship God. If you're on your notes there, being a living sacrifice means giving my entire life for God's glory. Living sacrifice. 
Of course, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. How true is that in my life? How true is that in your life, friends? I I want to be a living sacrifice. I want to offer my life completely to God. I want to see every moment of every day as an opportunity to worship him, and yet I keep falling into the same sins, same habits, the same ruts. Why? Why does this happen? Why do I drift back into shallow Christianity? Well, Brian is going to talk more about this next week, but part of the answer is found right here in verse 2. Can we read that out loud on our notes now? It says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Listen, according to Paul, the main reason... We struggle with offering our bodies as living sacrifices is that we become conformers instead of being transformed. The Greek word for transformed is just one of the greatest words in the entire Bible. That's why I wanted to share it with you. It is the word morphu. Isn't that awesome? Don't you just want to say that out loud? Why don't we do that right now? One, two, three, morphu. Maybe you recognize some English words we get from that. For example, the word metamorphosis comes from this word. And morphu, if you're following on your notes, just means this, the inward formation of the nature of a person. A caterpillar is morphed into a butterfly. Or the ancient writers would use this to describe the formation and growth of an embryo in a mother's womb. A baby is morphing or forming within the womb of a mother. Maybe a more recent example would be helpful. How many of you recognize these guys? I grew up on this show. Like, this was my time. They just remade this into a movie, I believe, recently. These are the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, normal, everyday high school kids who can morph into martial arts experts. In fact, their tagline was, it's morphing time. Why are shows like that so popular? Because there's something deep within our soul. Why are superhero movies so popular? There's something deep within us that wants to be transformed to change. And this is the idea Paul is suggesting here. He's saying once a person has received Christ in their lives and we offer our bodies as living sacrifices each day, we have the opportunity to morph We may not be able to leap over buildings in a single bound, but he has something much better in mind for us. If you're following on your notes there, we're meant to be morphed into the very image of Christ. We're meant to be morphed into the very image of Christ. Would you read Romans 8.29 on the screen with me out loud? See how Paul describes this. This is the seed that has been planted in God's goal for us. It says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is a helpful idea for me. If Jesus is the Monet painting, we are to become print copies, little Monet paintings going out into this world. We are to be morphed, it says, 
conformed into the very image of Christ. So that means his character, his nature can become mine over time as I live my life here on earth, offering myself as a living sacrifice. The promise is that I will be morphed to look and act more like Jesus. To use our language here, I will become more H3. I'll become more hungry. I'll become more humble. I'll become more hospitable. I will become different. Remember those bracelets about 20 years ago that said WWJD on them? Now, I have nothing necessarily against those bracelets. I'm not totally opposed to the message they sent, but in biblical understanding, friends, I hope you know the difference. When morphine is happening... It's not just that I am going to do what Jesus did out of sheer willpower. I think that's where so many Christians fall short, and that's where we are left with this guilt and the shame. I'm just going to, through willpower, become more like Jesus. That's not the promise we're given here, thank goodness. As I'm morphing, I'm actually going to find myself becoming more like Jesus naturally. It's just going to become more and more of who I am. Have you experienced the difference between those two things? I'll share one example in my life. When I was younger, I was not very compassionate. I would speak very poorly and negatively about people. And the seed of Christ was planted in my life. Let me ask you, is Jesus compassionate? the most compassionate human who ever lived. And so if morphine is happening in my life, over time, I'm going to naturally become more compassionate. It's not something I can do through sheer willpower. And just like a garden, it took time. And there were setbacks, and there were failures. And yet, I can honestly stand before you now and say, over time, God has given me compassion. He's helped me see people with different eyes to ask questions instead of make assumptions. Why? Because he's doing a work in my life. Do you know the difference between those two things? I always thought a better bracelet would be WWJB. What would Jesus be? As Christ followers, we're not going around trying to do right things. I don't not cheat on my taxes just because that's not what Jesus would have done. No, I want to become more like Jesus. I want his nature to make its way through my life so that I represent him. I want to become an H3 person. And Paul says, that's right. It's morphing time. And yet, if we're honest, too many of us in the church today, including me, I'm just not seeing that happen. I look at my life, I see failure, I see disappointment. I think I should have morphed into something much better by now. You ever say that? What is keeping me? from this kind of transformation? Well, Paul argues it's because we're in a fight. That's why we use that word. He says we are in a fight every day between two things, between being conformed by the world or being transformed into the person God intends us to become. I'm not being overly dramatic when I say every day in your life there is a war. There is a war at work. And you're either being conformed by the world Or you're being transformed into the person of Jesus Christ. Some of you see I'm not wearing what I might normally wear on a Sunday morning. If you haven't been able to see me all day, it's because I'm wearing camouflage. (laughs) Let me ask you, what is the purpose of camouflage? 
to blend in, to not draw attention, to be unnoticed, and camouflage is really important if you're in the military or if you're hunting, but it's disastrous for Christians. And yet that is what the world is trying to do to us every single day. Put on the camouflage. Put on the camouflage. Now, I know there's some very sensitive people here, which is a great thing. When I say the world, I want you to immediately stop thinking about the people of the world. That's not what scripture is talking about when he uses world in this instance. God loved the world, so he sent his only son for them. What the Bible is talking about is a system of ideas, principalities, and powers that are at work that are at war against God's values, against the kingdom of God here. We know what this means naturally. If you're watching ESPN at night and it says this just in from the world of sports, it's not talking about another planet physically. It's talking about a set of ideas. Maybe you still read the newspaper. You want to learn about the world of politics or the world of finances. These are all just describing organized systems of ideas. Similarly, in the Bible, often when this word world is used, if you're on your notes, it's talking about Satan's system for opposing the kingdom of God. The world and its system and its ideas and the principalities and the powers are opposed to the kingdom of God that Jesus ushered in that we continue to bring into this world. John writes about this often in 1 John 5, 19. He says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And so he says this in chapter two, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Don't be conformed to the world, to the principalities and powers that are at work here. Every day, though, this is what it comes down to. I have a choice. I'm either being conformed or I'm being transformed by kingdom values. Listen to how Russell Moore describes this in his incredible book, Onward. I hope you all read it. He says, the world system around us, the cultural matrix we inhabit, is alien to the kingdom of God, with different priorities, different strategies, and a different vision of the future. If we don't see that, we are walking a narrow and counterintuitive road. We will have nothing distinctive to say because we will have forgotten where we are. We're not to wear camouflage. Maybe you need some specific examples of how the world is trying to conform us. I will give you two. Think about the media that we fill our minds with. Is there anything evil with the media? No. It's a neutral thing. However, if you don't think the media has ideas that they're getting into us, I think we're blind. I had somebody come up to me several weeks ago, asked a great question. They asked, should I watch this specific show? I think it's the most popular show on TV right now. And I said to him, you're asking me the wrong question. The question isn't whether or not you should watch that. The question I want you to ask yourself is, what is watching that show doing for you? Is it conforming you to the way the world thinks and operates or is it transforming you more into the person of Jesus Christ? I've shared with you that our family, we don't watch rated R movies. It's not because I'm a legalist. It honestly isn't. 
It's because I've realized as I watch those things, it's putting things in my mind I don't want there. It's conforming me to think of the way the world thinks. And so we just said, I'm gonna cut that out. I'm gonna weed that out of our lives. I'll give you one more example. How many of you have one of these? Every single one of us, right? Is there anything inherently wrong with these phones? No, they're incredible tools. In fact, they can be used for my transformation. I can, at the click of a button, find any Bible verse I want in three seconds. I can look up words, I can look up commentaries, I can communicate with people across the world, other missionaries and other people. It's an amazing tool, it's an amazing opportunity. And yet, if I'm not careful, it can begin to conform me into patterns of thinking and ways of living that I don't necessarily want to become. Those are just two examples. Paul says, don't let the world conform you. Be on guard against this. Don't wear camouflage. Be transformed. Be different. Be weird. But if you're going to choose that, make no mistake. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be a fight. Of course, the big question I hope all of you have at this point is how? How can this kind of transformation happen in my life? How do I daily fight against shallow living, against conforming and take off the camouflage? How do I morph into who God has called me to be? I'll go back to the garden. It's going to take weeding, and it's going to take nourishing. Next week, I believe I'm speaking correctly, Pastor Brian's going to talk a lot about the weeding. This morning, I want to focus in our remaining time to talk about the nourishing. If you're following on your notes there, According to verse 2 of this text, we must nourish ourselves in activities that renew our mind. We must nourish ourselves in activities that renew our mind. Renewing refers to a new way of thinking. Instead of being conformed, I'm going to transform myself with the way I think. We will never be transformed, Paul says, without this renewing of our mind. And the way we renew our mind is by nourishing it How do we nourish our mind? With the same thing Jesus used, spiritual disciplines. We nourish our mind with spiritual disciplines. Now, whenever I say the word discipline, I think immediately, like, we kind of go, for many people, the word discipline has negative connotations. We associate it with legalism or bondage, but trust me when I tell you, that's not how Jesus viewed it. Jesus viewed spiritual disciplines as his life source. I picture a river. I'd love for you to picture a river whenever we say the word spiritual disciplines up here. A river flowing with God's grace. Spiritual disciplines are simply my decision to step into that river and to receive the grace God has for me this day and every day. Spiritual disciplines are the nourishment we need If we want to fight against shallow Christianity, they can actually free me. They don't restrain me. I think we all understand the example here, right? I was training for a bike ride this last summer. There's no way I could have showed up at that bike ride and thought, I'm going to accomplish this today. No. Every day I had to step into some training. I had to step into some training. I had to step into some training so that the day came when I was ready for that bike ride. The same is true in our spiritual lives to morph into non-camouflage Christians. It's going to require discipline. 
It's gonna require training. I just wanna pause here and make sure you do not leave here without understanding the difference between training and trying. This is like my burden this morning because I know so many of you are really good Christians and you really wanna do your best for God and all you're hearing right now is the shame cycle, which I heard early in my life. Ah, he's gonna talk about disciplines. Well, I'm not doing well enough at those. And so here's the cycle. Have you ever experienced this? I know I need to be better at prayer. I'm gonna try hard to pray. I'm gonna get up tomorrow morning at 4.30 in the morning and I'm gonna pray for two hours. And that lasted one day. And then I feel guilty. Here's the cycle. I feel guilty that I didn't do what I, I know I'm supposed to do. So then I muster up the courage again to try again. I'm gonna get up at four this morning and do it again. And I fail And I go back into this cycle, right? Trying harder will only lead you into a cycle of shame and guilt. That's not the invitation that God has for us when he talks about spiritual disciplines. Hear me now, if you're on your notes here, morphine isn't a matter of trying harder, but of training wisely. This is why Paul says to Timothy, train yourself in godliness. Training is an intentional plan for success. It's the key to the morphing life. Trying to do something with no plan or no training is gonna just lead to disaster and failure. I'll give you another example. I used to be pretty good at golf. You know why I was pretty good at golf? Because I played a lot of golf. I don't play a lot of golf anymore, and so when I go out on the golf course, here's this weird thing that happens. I think I should still be good at golf. And I get mad when I miss that putt or when I post a score that I would never have posted before when I was really good at golf. And we all laugh at that and go, well, why would he expect that he'd be good at golf when he doesn't even train in golf? Why do we think it's any different in our spiritual life? Why do we think just one morning we're going to wake up and go, I'm going to master this spiritual discipline? Like anything in life, it requires training. It requires taking one step to the next, to the next, to the next. It won't just happen naturally. There's no shortcut to spiritual formation. Only those who are willing to train themselves in disciplines are gonna begin the morphine process. Now, what kind of disciplines are we talking about? Well, just look at the Gospels. Look at all the disciplines that Jesus invested his life in. He invested in private disciplines like solitude and silence and simplicity study and prayer and fasting, but he also invested in what I'll just call social disciplines, like worship and service and fellowship and celebration. That's why Brian stood up here earlier this morning and said, one of the ways we grow is by being in groups with each other. That's a discipline. That's an invitation. Jesus understood that these practices were essential for him. They were the grace that he needed to flow over his life in order to live for the glory of his father in the same way. If we want to become disciples who are fighting shallow Christianity, who are morphing more and more into the image of Jesus Christ each day, if you're on your notes, it means arranging my life around the spiritual disciplines that Jesus practiced. On the back of your notes, I encourage you to turn over there after you're done with that. 
I used some of the same things Jeff used last week, and I listed the spiritual disciplines that can help us morph into H3 disciples. I've also included some resources there I've found helpful in my own morphing process, which is still ongoing. As you look at some of those, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Don't flip back over yet. Look at those lists of spiritual disciplines, trusting that the Holy Spirit of God is present in our midst right now. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I guarantee you for you, there's a couple of them that are jumping out the page at you right now. Circle them. Circle them on the back of your notes there. Now, instead of leaving this morning and vowing that you're going to try harder to do them, I want you to consider what it would look like to set up a training program for them. For example, I'll give you an example. One of the ones that's really stood out to me this week is the word fasting. And I know why this one always stands out to me is because I have a fear of not having enough. So fasting is pretty scary to me. But what a perfect discipline for somebody who has a fear of not having enough. Because as I fast, I can remind myself that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. Now, here would be the worst thing that I could do leaving this morning. Tomorrow, I'm going to start a seven-day fast. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to try really hard to do that. (laughs) What would it look like for me to train? I think you have an imagination for that. Maybe I fast from my nightly bowl of cereal at 8 p.m. first. Maybe I fast lunch or breakfast. And then as I've trained myself in that, maybe once a week I do that. Maybe I go to two meals. But whatever I sense God's goal is for me, let's talk about a different kind of fast, fasting from this device I showed you earlier, a media fast. I can't cut the cable bill tomorrow and think that's going to be successful. But what I can do is say, okay, where are some times, where are some margins when I can plug my phone in the room and not go look at it? How can you and the thing that's standing out to you this morning train yourself? Here's some other ideas. Find someone else. Find someone else who wants to do it with you or to keep you accountable. You know, working out with someone else is proven to keep a person more motivated. Who can you do life with in this? Maybe it means asking a person who is a lot farther along in their morphine process than you are. Is that legal in the church? Is it okay to ask other people who are further along in their faith journey how they read the Bible, how they pray, how they practice celebration and some of these other disciplines? totally legal. In fact, I'll bet you they'd love to share with you. That's what discipleship is. We all need a coach at times. But again, my biggest fear is that you're going to leave here thinking, I feel so guilty, so I'm going to try really hard now. Don't try. Train. Train. Just like a seed is not going to just morph into a fruit in an instant. It's going to take training. It's going to take time. It's going to take abiding in Christ. And there'll be setbacks. There'll be weeds. There'll be failures. Don't let it stop you. 
Friends, as we close, the reason we say we're fighting shallow Christianity here is because we want to live our whole lives as living sacrifices for the glory of God and his kingdom. That's our vision. We're not meant to blend into this world. We're not meant to be camouflage Christians. We're meant to be transformed into the very image of Christ. And we do that as we do that. The kingdom of God begins to break free in this world. As I'm transformed, more people have the opportunity to be transformed, but it doesn't happen without a fight. So that's why we're fighting shallow Christianity. I wanted to close this morning by us all yelling, it's morphing time. But instead, here's the question on your notes. Will I fight to morph into the person God called me to be? If he has planted the seed of salvation in your life, he has a vision for you. Will you fight for it? Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for who you are, for what you've done for us. Let us be there for people. Let us be people who offer our lives as living sacrifices to you for your glory and for your kingdom. Let us not do that by trying harder, but by training wisely, by placing ourselves in your grace, by feeding on your disciplines of grace that you've given us. Morph us, transform us into the kind of people you envision for us. We join you in your work in our lives. And all God's people said.